want to thank Professor Salerno for allowing me the opportunity to present a defense of free banking. Uh, there's been a lot of debate over the theory of free banking and monetary disequilibrium theory, and due to time constraints, I won't be able to address all of the uh, objections. In a forthcoming paper, uh, I, I will give a more thorough response to all the recent objections. Um, I'm going to try to leave some time for questions at the end. I hope I look forward to your questions. And uh, I believe that if you apply the insights that I provide today, you'll be able to um, answer most of the unresolved questions that are related to the topic. So let's see. I also want to start off with saying why I support free banking uh, so that no one can ever in the future say that it's, it's about uh, price stickiness or anything. I support it because of it's conducive to Say's law. It uh, promotes a nat natural interest rate, right, a Wixellian interest rate, and it's uh, conducive to personal freedom and innovation. All right, so the prime concern uh, by Philip Bagus and David Howden is uh, would, would uh, a free banking system allow expansion in concert? And this is related to uh, the uh, interbank lending market would be a mechanism which banks would be able to borrow reserves from each other. And by expanding in concert, you get kind of a prisoner's dilemma situation where if, if everyone behaves a certain way, then you get a suboptimal outcome. And by not losing reserves to each other, then they can all expand, right? Uh, De Soto made the same argument in, in his book. And lastly, the Austrian business cycle necessarily ensues. So a lot of the literature thus far has been focused on reserve management. For example, uh, Selgin's book on the theory of free banking. And this is warranted because one of the prime concerns about the need for a central bank is to be the lender of last resort in case of a liquidity crisis. But unfortunately, uh, by overly focusing on reserve management, it's left the argument open to uh, the, the argument about um, expansion and concert, I believe. So we have to look at how banks actually operate fully with, uh, to be able to understand this. So banks face risk beyond liquidity risk, and bank credit is not only constrained by institutionally determined reserve ratios, such as the often recited, you know, banks lend out 10 times what they have in reserves. So what actually determines the uh, supply of inside money, that's money created by the banks, is the risk-adjusted net interest margins, uh, capital adequacy, and liquidity. And in a mature banking system, uh, liquidity actually gets priced into the net interest margins uh, because banks lend to each other. So... How banks make profits, you know, their, their bottom line is determined by interest income from their assets minus net charge-offs and delinquencies for bad debt plus non-interest income fees, origination fees, uh, stuff like that. Interest expense minus, uh, or minus interest expense minus operating expense, employees, overhead, plus or minus gains and losses on portfolio minus taxes. Uh, so if you factor out the uh, the operating stuff, 
what you get is the difference between what banks lend at and the rate that they have to borrow at to pay depositors and other sources of funding. And that is your net interest margins. So if we, if we look at, uh, if we expand on this, you get your return on assets minus your net charge off and delinquency rates, which you could restate as, as risk to the portfolio, uh, minus your cost of funds, which includes bonds, deposits, and reserves borrowed or lent. Um, borrowing reserves, you're going to be paying interest. If you have excess reserves, you're going to lend it at interest and earn interest. Right? So uh, after that, you get your risk-adjusted net interest margins. And we know from uh, Micro 101 that profit maximization occurs when marginal revenue equals marginal cost. Therefore, the inside money supply is endogenously a function of bank profitability, which is derived from the risk-adjusted net interest margins. Since the interbank lending rate affects the rate the banks pay to attract deposits, uh, the interbank lending market coordinates the allocation of credit to its most highly valued uses. So this means the interbank lending market uh, is the price signal that restricts rather than enables excess money creation unless you have a central bank to manipulate this price signal, in our case, the federal funds rate. So uh, when the Fed does this, it changes the bank's cost of funds and causes them to misprice risk. So since the central banks generally target inflation around the world, they usually have interest rates too low in the boom time when inflation is low, providing too much liquidity, and then too high, they raise the interest rates once price inflation starts to show up, and then they cause a credit crunch. So now let's apply this to a scenario to show how the interbank lending market restricts uh, over expansion of credit. Bank A is privy to a loan or investment that yields above average um, expected returns relative to risk. And the bank has average cost of capital. So a, a ceteris paribus assumption, right? The bank will approve the loan and credit the borrower's account. Now, in order to prevent losing reserves, the bank will attract new deposits by uh, raising interest paid on their deposits. Um, and that'll, by attracting deposits, uh, that'll raise their competitors' cost of funds, too. Or they'll borrow the reserves on the interbank lending rate, and that'll also raise uh, the, the rate the banks lend at. And either way, the risk-adjusted net interest margins are compressed, and the profits of the rest of the banks go down. So how does this relate to uh, monetary disequilibrium theory? Well, time preference determines the saving rate, the average rate of interest, or the Wixillian natural rate. Uh, but liquidity preference determines the allocation of wealth between money and risk assets, and the shape of the yield curve. So since banks are involved in maturity transformation and intertemporal markets of the capital, uh, what the signals they deal with are the yield curve to determine how to make that trade-off across time. Uh, so a steep yield curve signals to banks to increase the money supply. 
Uh, so the banks respond to those price signals of the yield curve. Uh, risk aversion and high liquidity preference of the public leads to risk assets such as stocks to sell at a discount, which increases their yields, and interest paid on deposits increase or decrease. Sorry, um, if you know people, the public gets scared, they move out of stocks, they want to go into cash. That's going to lower the rate of interest that people, that the banks have to pay to borrow because the public demands more money. Uh, they're, they're willing to accept uh, a lower rate of return on their deposits. Um, banks purchase securities, so when this happens, banks will purchase the securities, the risk assets, and they'll, they'll make new loans, which simultaneously creates new deposits, and it returns the asset prices in, into equilibrium with their yields, and at the same time provides liquidity to satisfy society's uh, preferred allocation of wealth. So uh, as Austrians, we know time preference determines the rate of interest, which would be the average rate of interest. But liquidity preference pay, uh, has uh, an influence on yield curve and the uh, differential between money and risk assets. Uh, if you're familiar with the, the CAPM model, the uh, securities market line, which determines uh, the, if, if a security has an above expected return or below um, average respect, uh, return relative to risk, the, the shape of that or the slope of that line would be uh, uh, determined by the liquidity preference of the public is another way to look at that. All right, so one of the claims is that the... Demand for money is relatively stable, so uh, you wouldn't have these problems in a free market. You wouldn't have, uh, you wouldn't need to have banks to adjust the money supply. But uh, unfortunately, or however you look at it, um, that's not necessarily true, because the evidence I provide here over the last about 100 years from Fed data, was, I'm, we're looking at uh, change in the currency held by the public, and so this is a, a pretty good indicator of the demand for money because it, it shows if, if the public holds more demand for currency, they're going to pull money out of the banks. Usually this shows the transaction demand for money especially. Um, and so what you see here is that at the beginning of the year, after the holidays, uh, the public reduces their demand to hold currency. And then, especially in the autumn time, and uh, especially once you get near the holidays, uh, you have a huge, uh, relatively, um, demand for people to have currency for spending, right? So if you had a fixed supply of money, this would pose a problem because you'd have, you know, almost a 3.5% change that would fall on a change in the price level in a two-month period. Um, that, that would... That's what Selgin is talking about by confusing the entrepreneurs as to whether there's a fall-off in demand for their own goods or whether it's you know, economy-wide. Either way, uh, they're, they're going to be less profitable, and it's not due to the real economic factors. So I, I think this really supports the case for, for uh, free banking and having uh, flexible money supply that responds to market signals. Now, uh, Austrians have gotten some criticism lately over why, haven't, why hasn't there been enough inflation as much as you guys have predicted. Uh, so you, applying this model that I just have presented about 
you know, risk-adjusted net interest margins determining the money supply. Uh, we can look at the Federal Reserve's policy of Operation Twist, and we see how it's keeping the yield curve flat. And so what this does is it re- leads to reduced profitability of, you know, the marginal loan, so the banks have less incentive to uh, expand. So the Fed's trying to create demand for loans or, or reinflate the housing bubble by uh, having interest rates low, but the banks, that's not going to incentivize the banks to make those loans at such re- um, low interest rates, uh, and that's why only the most creditworthy borrowers are able to get credit right now. So it's, um, it, it's a typical, you know, like a price ceiling. If you put a price ceiling, you're going to have shortages. So banks are compensating uh, by increasing their, their interest income, uh, fees. You've seen, you know, debit card fees go up. You've seen the Federal Reserve, I mean, the, like Bank of America charge fees just to have an account. They're finding new ways to, to generate income since their interest income is, is reduced right now. And plus you have the interest rate on reserves also reduces the opportunity cost of holding reserves, uh, which effectively reduces net interest margins. Um, so that, I would say, is why we haven't had inflation. And I would say that a good predictor that you, and we probably won't have very high inflation until long-term interest rates go up. Uh, I, I'll say uh, one, a couple more things. Uh, Bagus and uh, Howden talked about how um, free banking ultimately leads to cartels, and they also talked about how uh, negotiability of reserves is uh, affected by asset prices being inflated due to money being created. I, I'll address more of these in, in a forthcoming paper. I even talk about, they mentioned the Panic of 1857. So we, we take a little closer look at it as to whether that really uh, meets the criteria they're discussing. But as re- in regards to their third claim of, about increased negotiability of reserves, uh, well, this sounds a little confusing because reserves are the numeraire as to which uh, asset, I mean, all transactions occur, and, and since money is a unit of count, and it trades with no bid-ask spread. So reserves are always going to have a constant negotiability. I, I, I'm a little confused on what they mean by that. But um, plus, if, you're just, if their concern is really about liquidity and its relation to uh, flexibility in asset prices uh, of the bank's asset side of the balance sheet, well, then uh, banks do have, I mean, pretty much what banks do is asset liability management and to manage their liquidity risks uh, over time. So banks have an economic incentive to manage risks, and hold, they'll hold capital to offset that risk in that situation. Um, I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs>